Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast, and the only podcast to be placed on the Index Librorum Prohibitorum since January of 2009. Yes, no other podcast has been placed on this list since Hitler was burning books. Before we get into uh, the content of this podcast, let's hit uh, the Skunk Tech of the Week and one review I wanted to point out. I know you don't keep up with reviews, Leighton, but I read them. I keep meaning to look back, and I know we haven't done one in a while, so I was actually meaning to look at one before this podcast, but then I just couldn't muster the ability to care. I've got one for you. All right, hit me. Uh, A little rough around the edges, but really good. It's a three-star review by Edward Chamberlain. Leighton and Chuck are certainly capable of thorough research and critical thinking, both of which make their podcast informative and insightful. Unfortunately, their skepticism often leads to ad hom arguments and the flip side of religious foundationalism. Hmm. I can see that. Well, first of all, um, I think he means religious fundamentalism. Uh, <laughs> and, and I love the, the uh, hat tip to Jack Chick with the ad hom arguments. It's, it's, that's the hip-hop black lingo he got from Jack Chip. You know, yo, quit laying down the ad hom. <laughs> uh, this is a common misunderstanding as to what the ad hominem fallacy is. Uh, the common misperception is that it's an ad hominem fallacy when you insult people. That is not true. <laughs> that can't be a fallacy, because uh, oftentimes when we insult people, it's the truth. Sarah Palin is an idiot. Glenn yes. Beck is a douchebag. That's There's no true. Way of getting around those. It's they not a are fallacy. Just idiots and douchebags. The fallacy is when you say Glenn Beck is wrong because he's a douchebag. That's the ad hominem fallacy. It means to the man. Instead of taking the argument directly on, you uh, say that he's wrong. His arguments are wrong because he's an idiot or a douchebag or et cetera, et cetera. So I just basically, clear up that misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, that misunderstanding. So if I was to state that the guy who wrote this was a retard, I would be all right because he has proven it. The uh, truth is the absolute defense. (laughs) Which is why religion has such trouble defending things. Oh, you want to get into the skunk dicks of the week, candidates? Yes, yes, and uh, I really think we should start out with the Baldwin brother. Uh, There's this uh, wonderful um, YouTube, and it's hard to tell whether this is a parody or not. Did you get the sense? Well, I got the sense that it was a parody, but then looking at Stephen Baldwin, I'm thinking this guy is just stupid enough to try and pull something like this. And yet, the religious are just stupid enough to fall for it. So, Stephen Baldwin found Jesus. And ever since he found Jesus, his career went down the tubes. He <laughs> suffered from bankruptcy. <laughs> and he blamed the fact that he was losing parts in movies on his newfound religion. No, l- let me tell you why you are losing parts. You are the worst actor I have ever seen. Really? Worse than Miley Cyrus? I don't think I've ever seen Miley Cyrus. <laughs> well, Stephen Baldwin has a Hannah Montana tattoo. Miley Cyrus tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is uh, is he trying to rob the cradle? Is it's one. It's one of his big regrets. He apparently put a Miley Cyrus tattoo on himself so that he could be a guest star in the show. But apparently, even that uh, wouldn't sway the powers that be at the Miley Cyrus show. Probably because it's he's creepy a, as hell. <laughs> he's a he's a Christian, 
and they were persecuting him for his uh, belief in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that that makes that makes sense right there. It, it has nothing to do with the fact that tattooing a young girl onto your ass isn't creepy as hell. It's all because you're a Christian. I don't know if it was on his ass, but... Uh, oh, I'm sure it is knowing this guy. So he's comparing himself to Job um, because, you know, uh, Stephen Baldwin is an upstanding and perfect and blameless man, just like Job. Yes, yes. And just like Job, they want to restore his character, and uh, that requires apparently donating money. And then uh, all the glory somehow will go to God. It's amazing how that works. And yeah. after that happens, uh, all of uh, Stephen Baldwin's wives and children will, who have been slaughtered uh, will restore themselves. Um, well, he'll get more, basically. That's what happened to Job. Yeah. And all the boils will go away. Now, it's actually kind of curious because in the video, it's stated that they want to bring him back to his original glory. Now, my question is, uh, why didn't you post his financial statements beforehand so we can have, like, a bar and watch him reading his original glory? I mean, uh, does it make any sense uh, to throw out nothing and just hope for everything? I think what they mean is ever since he converted to Christianity, he's been surrounded, he's been giving off this massive stench. And uh, much <laughs> like Job, he is The boils taken, are starting to sweat through. He is taking to sitting inside a pile of shit and uh, smearing itself all over him. I can see him doing that. I'm just waiting for that little whirlwind of fire or whatever to appear to Job or Stephen Baldwin. It's hard to tell them apart. Well, the only whirlwind of fire that guy will be able to do is a blue dart. Our next candidate is uh, Glenn Beck. What a surprise. The um, article in the New York Times says that uh, strict abortion measures enacted in Oklahoma. So uh, the Oklahoma legislature voted Tuesday to override the governor's vetoes of two abortion measures, one of which requires women to undergo an ultrasound and listen to a detailed description of the fetus before getting an abortion. Motherfuckers. Now, the reason Glenn Beck is the asshole here, the skunk dick, is because he... <laughs> mentioned on his show that if the abdomen were like a win if your if your uterus had a window in it right if your abdomen was transparent females abdomens were transparent no one would get an abortion oh these motherfuckers you, you know this is all i've got to say because it also goes towards those women who have incest rape they all are forced to this so how about we do this Let's round up all you lawmakers, including Glenn Beck. I will rape you until you are pregnant, and then I'll drag you down to the clinic and force you to look at that child and face that shame all over again, you fucking assholes. This, this isn't about caring for the woman or caring for the baby. It's all about making women feel inferior and guilty and terrible. You know, you're, you're sitting there. Obviously, you don't want to be at an abortion clinic. Or, you know, seeking anyone. You, you would not choose to be in this position. And now you got to watch uh, an ultrasound and you got to have some dipshit read to you detailed descriptions of the fetus. Hey, look, he's got a little nose. Hey, look, he's got toes. I don't know if you're aware of it, ma'am, but he does have toes. And look, he's got a little dick. How could you abort this baby? He's got a dick. Yeah, the only dicks I see are the stupid lawmakers. I mean, are you fucking shitting me? You goddamn assholes 
Women don't want to be in that situation in the first place, and you assholes decide that making it even more difficult for them is the way to go, is to the way to discourage this sort of behavior? Fuck you. How about you spend your time uh, helping, you know, educate, you know, because clearly the um, abstinence-only education is working because they don't need measures like this anymore. <laughs> you sure. idiots. How about spending more time educating them on their contraceptive options so they don't get to the point where they need an abortion? How about that? I don't know. It's just an idea. Yeah, well, that's because sex before marriage doesn't happen. Oh, wait. You have any idea how many pregnant women were around me during high school in a very Mormon community? But it doesn't happen. I thought all the women around you got pregnant in high school. Well, they did, but that's because I couldn't control myself. I'd walk down the halls and, oops! Oh, great, there's another child. The final candidate for Skunk Dick of the Week is Sarah Palin. <laughs> and uh, this one is a beauty. I, I gotta tell you, Sarah... Palin becomes even more stupid the more I see her. All right, let's play this clip. Prayer warriors all across the country, and I know some of you are here tonight. And you give that strength, providing that prayer shield. That is the only way to put one foot in front of the other and get through some of these days with joy. I don't know how any politician could or would want to do this without knowing that there were prayer warriors out there and wisdom for you. I, I'm amazed that she comes out and says how wonderfully effective these prayer shields are. Thank God everyone's praying for me. Because you know I am vice president, and McCain did get into the presidency. So thanks for all those prayers. <laughs> yeah, well, where were all your prayers back then when America was looking at you? And uh, oh, what, what magazines and newspapers do you read again? <laughs> all of them. She all reads of all them. of them. Uh, could you state one? Just one? Well, she reads all. all of them. She reads Jugs, Hustler, uh, <laughs> uh, Whip and Tickle. <laughs> I think Whip and Tickle was on her coffee table while they were doing the interview. Queer, Fat, Asian, Lesbian Monthly. She reads that one. <laughs> well, doesn't everybody? Yeah. <laughs> it's on my list. <laughs> All right, let's uh, feed this into the computer and see which of these three candidates is our skunk dick of the week. Uh, what's your vote? My mind's Glenn Beck. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's hands down Glenn Beck and those fucking lawmakers out in Oklahoma. I'd like to rape every motherfucking last one of them. Stand by. Analysis verified. Bob Lonsberry? Who the fuck is Bob Lonsberry? I don't know, ask the computer. Maybe we can get a readout. Well, he's got these articles where... <laughs> Actually, this one was sent in by a, a, a listener of our show. Um, and it, the title of this article, Bob Lonsberry is uh, obviously Mormon. I read his bio, and he speaks about two years of missionary service now he used to be in Utah. He does this little thing in New York, and apparently he's on Utah AM Radio too. Uh, he's uh, conservative. So here's his... Um, article. It says, not all, but some. It starts out, my queer Uncle Bob started French kissing me when I was five. <laughs> I'm still wondering what's wrong with that. <laughs> was, his, was his tongue too big? I mean, you could have asked him to, you know, lay off a little. Doesn't everyone have a queer Uncle Bob? I'm sure they made a movie about that. What about Bob? 
Now, when he was 12, this florist guy came on to his best friend Ronnie and to him. He's apparently incredibly attractive. Actually, he came on to me and I told Ronnie, and Ronnie said he had done same, the same thing to him, and before that summer was over, we found probably five or six of our classmates who had the same thing happen. Man, that's a lot of attractive men in, the, in one small spot. Either that or that gay man just doesn't care. And that's how we learned about gay people. And the lesson was simple. Stay away from queers. Just Much like, like we... rattlesnakes. Stay <laughs> away from rattlesnakes and bullheads and barking dogs. They won't all hurt you, but some of them will. And there's no point in taking a chance. What I want to know is, why is this guy so fixated on gays? Because I found another article by him called The Mystery of Elena Kagan. Now, she's the um, Supreme Court justice nominee, right? She's going to yeah. replace the outgoing Supreme Court justice. Yeah. And, and what, did he, what kind of research did he put into this? Here's, here's the mystery of Elena Kagan. The first question he asks, sentence number one, is she a lesbian? <laughs> and... That's what America is really wanting to know. Right. Is she queer? No one will say that out loud, and I'm not sure how much of it is more than basic curiosity, but it is the top thing on people's minds. Now, um, I, clearly he's done extensive research, right? Yes, yes. In fact, just looking at this douchebag, I can tell that he spends hours and hours researching something before he puts it to word. So here, here's his extensive research. He must have been on the phone talking to everyone in America. Uh, what's your top priority? What's your biggest yeah. question about Ellen Kagan? I mean, we're talking there must have been surveys hitting thousands of people for a nice control group. Here it is. Throughout the day yesterday, I went to Google and typed in the words, Elena Kagan. As I typed in more letters and the predictive indicator tried to finish my phrase, it gave an insight into what America is looking for. Uh, so... What what was that predictive insight? What did it say? What did Google say? Uh, Kagan husband. Throughout most of the day, these three words were in the top four suggestions from Google: husband, married, and personal life. Oh my God! Either husband or married was the top selection all day. They wanted to know if she was gay. From that, <laughs> from that predictive indicator list of three: husband, married, and personal life. He determines they wanted to know if she was gay. I've wondered why, and if there's any significance to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, this guy, he's got a one-track mind where he's concerned. I mean... Uh, I don't know how... If they wonder if she's got a husband or if she's married or personal life, that's pretty neutral. Maybe they just want to find out stuff about her. Yeah, maybe but, uh, they're wondering... <laughs> If she doesn't really have qualifications, maybe they're wondering about her background to yeah. just learn a little bit more about her character. And and so he he's come to that firm conclusion, and then he's wondering, what's the significance of that? Did they wonder because her looks? <laughs> it is harsh to say. Oh, God, not so <laughs> but did America look at her grooming and personal appearance and see a stereotype? Uh, if uh. so... There, there's the potential for that to be cruelly and completely unfair. See, so he's he's totally non-bigoted, right? No, and then the no, next, all lesbians <laughs> look butchy. <laughs> the next paragraph, but some people look a certain way for a certain reason. Oh God! There is an element of choice in some aspects of appearance, right? Some women look butch for a reason. <laughs> oh, God. 
let, let me point out something to you, jackass. When I was in the military, uh, the about half the women I knew who were wearing uniform were lesbian. And uh, they, they weren't half bad looking. So <laughs> I don't know where you're getting this butch statistic from. Oh, but, good uh, nicely Lord. Done. Yeah, what about... <laughs> What about Don't Ask, Don't Tell? That program will face a Supreme Court, right? Yeah. Um, You know, what if she is gay, he says. Would that change support for her one way or the other? Would it be relevant? Well, it might be if the issue of gay marriage should ever find its way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, because we can't have Supreme Court justices with an agenda. Should a gay justice be allowed to rule on gay marriage? (laughs) Oh, I love it. So so up until now... (laughs) All of the heterosexual judges recused themselves on issues of heterosexual marriage. Oh, Bob Lonsbury, go fuck yourself. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, this guy does. I'm sorry. <laughs> the two the two people here, all the attorneys are all white. I happen to be white. I'm going to recuse myself. I can't judge fairly on this. <laughs> yes, Good Lord. Yes, yes that... That Hispanic man, hmm, I don't think we can have him judging on anybody white, black, or any other. Listen here, Clarence Thomas, that man is black. You're going to have to get yourself out of here. You can't be trusted to come to a fair conclusion. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah. That's some oh my great God. logic, Lonsbury. Oh, my God, it's a man. I guess... Uh, Seven of us are going to have to recuse ourselves and the two females. <laughs> you guys take the ball on this one. It's fucking idiotic. God, yeah. what an asshole. But, you so, know, uh, his logic would have helped in those uh, abortion laws because you, you put a bunch of right. women on the panel. Yeah, yeah get men out of there. Yeah. Oh, God. It, it, unbelievable. And he, he, what he doesn't, he goes, you know, he doesn't care if she's gay or not. Right. Fucking right, he doesn't yeah. care. He just yeah. cares if she's gay and doesn't own up to it. <laughs> You know why? Because then, then he'd know for sure she's gay. <laughs> and then and he just doesn't of... like to be lied yeah. to. That's what yeah. it all comes down to. It wouldn't bother him, right? If she came out as gay, he wouldn't uh, write an article about how you should stay away from queers, like you stay away from fucking rattlesnakes and hound dogs, yeah. barking, growling dogs, because um, he's totally not bigoted. He's completely fair. Yeah. So, you know, if you come out as gay... And, you know, people are completely fair about this whole thing. The, the yeah. confirmation will be smooth. They'll, they can be trusted to keep their personal feelings uh, and bigotry, you know, to themselves, and they'll vote their conscience without uh, any uh, yeah. presuppositions. In fact, I think we should put Bob Lonsbury on there to discuss gay marriage because we all know he would look at the facts fairly and justly before coming out with a decision. Yeah, I'm actually, his fixation with gays um, intrigues me. Uh, you think he's a closet? <laughs> I'm not saying he's gay. You're just I'm saying just, he's a closet. I'm just saying that we should hook his penis up to one of those little meters and flash gay porn in front of him to see if he's aroused. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just asking questions. Well, that, I want to get to the truth. That more towards your gay propensity to fiddle with some guy's penis. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, notice how Charlie didn't answer that? Yes, we all know. Moving... I'm not the single man here in his 30s in Utah. Living with a large black man who won't be... <laughs> <laughs> All right, the topic of this podcast is 1950, the comic scare of the 1950s. And why would we consider this something irreligiosophy should take a look at? 
Yeah, that'll become uh, clear fairly quickly, actually. We should probably back up all the way... Uh, shit, this has been going on forever, but we could probably start with the pulp novels of the 1800s, right? The Victorian era. We're yeah. shocked about all these gunplay and, and all this writing uh, about lusty he-men. Uh, there were <laughs> people really angry about that in the 1800s. Um, and comics are kind of the successor to that. They uh, During the turn of the century, um, Joseph Pulitzer the, of the Pulitzer Prize... Um, introduced a Sunday supplement to the new. He had a he bought one of the printing presses that were capable of printing four colors. Wow, that is that's, some really impressive color. That's technology. So uh, this Sunday supplement had um, a bunch of stuff in it. Uh, you know, illustrated stories, political cartoons, and there was a uh, cartoon strip called Hogan's Alley. Uh, it, only a couple years. It was 1906 when the first article came out against the comics. And they, it was in the Atlantic Monthly. It called comics a thing of national shame and degradation. Respect for property, respect for parents, for law, for beauty, for kindliness, for dignity, or for honor are killed without mercy. 1906. Those comics I, must have been awful. Yeah, what, did they see Popeye punching out somebody? <laughs> Popeye didn't. <laughs> Exist in 1906. Well, you're the one throwing out numbers now. He's, he's 20 years later. Um, uh, the Ladies' Home Journal, right, Paragon of uh, Cultural Virtues, mm-hmm. in 1909 published an article entitled A Crime Against Children. And in it, it wondered, are we parents criminally negligent of our children, or is it that we have not put our minds on the subject of continuing to allow them to be injured by the inane and vulgar comic supplement of the Sunday newspaper? One thing is certain. We are permitting to go on under our very noses and in our own homes an extraordinary stupidity and an influence for repulsive and often depraving vulgarity so colossal that it is rapidly taking on the dimensions of nothing short of a national crime against our children. <laughs> yes, we are all swirling down to chaos where the kids are going to go nuts. Good Housekeeping complained that these supplements were published on the gasp Christian Sabbath, <gasps> thus profaning it. Whoa, 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 whoa. We are promoting that kids read on the Sabbath? It's the smut and violence and stuff that shows kids taking advantage of uh, uh, their elders. With the one <laughs> exception, I think of something called, was it Grandpa Fox or something, where the old dude outwitted the kids. <clears throat> but that was, you know, in the minority. Anyway, yeah, I'm pretty sure that one wasn't very popular considering <laughs> kids are the target audience. <laughs> well, you know, kids, immigrants who couldn't read, you know, like the colorful pictures, they they try to follow it. So, like I said, this kind of echoed the the criticism of the dime novels in the 19th century. Uh, in 1873, there's passed a Comstock Act, which was after uh, the head of the post office, or special agent of the post office, Anthony Comstock. That act prohibited using the mail for things intended for immoral use. <laughs> the hell? <laughs> really? I'd like you to uh, define that one. Uh, I think we should get it to work for email, because I'm sure there's a lot of immoral use of email going on. Yeah, In 1883, Anthony Comstock wrote a book called Traps for the Young, in which he said... Is that a pedophile how-to book? <laughs> 
our youth are in danger. Mentally and morally, they are cursed by a literature that is a disgrace to the 19th century. This stuff is nothing new. All these adults always want to um, take away good stuff from the kids. What yeah. the hell is wrong with them? Uh, they're adults and they're religious. <laughs> what else? I guess that's it. Yeah, we'll wind it up. <laughs> okay, we're done. Thank you for still. <laughs> <laughs> in 1912, Catholic Bishop John Knoll uh, started the first national Catholic publication, Our Sunday Visitor. Right, eventually uh, reached an audience of three million homes. Uh, he mostly wrote against communism. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, and nice the, that uh, he's using his religious persuasions to affect uh, the government and views of such things. Yeah, didn't like communism. And the immoral magazines, uh, which he believed were part of a communist plan to destroy the morals of our youths. You can always blame everything on the commies. It's it, the communists. They probably yeah. wrote the uh, um, dime novels of the 1800s. Well, I'm thinking we should blame Indiana Jones 4 on the commies because that was the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> that was pretty bad. <laughs> uh, Damn commies, knock it off. Let's leave us alone, huh? The, the criticism of these comic supplements, Sunday supplements, kind of died off in 1914 when the attention of the nation was really taken over by World War I. So it, it was on the back burner for the, the next about 20 years. And those 20 years saw some pretty good comics. Um, they were experimenting, kind of pushing the boundaries of it. This is where Crazy Cat and uh, uh, Popeye came in and E.C. Seeger's Thimble Theater. Um, Dick Tracy came in, uh, Tarzan, and Terry and the Pirates, which was an immensely popular uh, comic strip written and drawn by Milton Caniff. And actually, if you look at the art, it's really, really good. Hmm. That one's really impressive. Actually, I've always liked Dick Tracy. I remember reading those as kids. Wow, really? Yeah, I remember. Well, see, in my family, uh, a lot of my brothers and sisters didn't like to read. And so in an attempt to... Uh, to didn't like to or couldn't? Uh, that's debatable. Um, but, <laughs> but, I mean, they didn't like to. So my mom, trying to inspire reading, she went down to the comic book shop, but she didn't have a lot of money, so she went to, like all the little penny and ten cent comics and just bought, brought home an entire stack and they just sat there and so I kind of snagged them all and read them. So, so they, they bought you like bargain bin comics. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, I'm sure yeah. this was dusty in the back room and they were like, oh, someone actually wants to pay money for these. Sure, here you go. Yeah. Uh, by the way, um, there are two really good books on this subject. One is Seal of Approval. It's kind of more scientifically oriented, although I disagree with some of the conclusions in there. The second one, and I think the better one, is uh, Tencent Plague. Um, and I'm mostly following Tencent Plague in this. Uh, it's a great read if you want to read it. Um, well, actually, there's a couple of others they can take a look at. There's Grant Gaisman's, uh, it's, it's a coffee table book, and it's actually called Foul Play, The Art and Artists of the Notorious 1950s EC Comics. And they actually had a documentary come out by Selby that uh, was Tales from the Crypt, uh, from comic books to television. And it's, it's great because it actually talks about how uh, George A. Romero and Joel Silver were claiming that EC was the ones who pioneered gory horror and black humor and jump-started their, career, or their careers, basically aiming them down the horror stream. So I would recommend those ones. 
a hundred percent EC was the first to do that stuff. Yeah. Um, do you know why it was named Foul Play? No, I don't actually. That comes up in the uh, Senate hearings we're going to get into later. Um, Foul Play was a story in EC Comics' Haunt of Fear where baseball players ended up playing baseball with body parts of <laughs> people. <laughs> if none of you have ever read one of these EC comics, you've really got to pick one up. They are great. <laughs> oh, my God, they're fantastic. All right, so that takes us kind of to 1933 uh, when you have actually the first uh, comic book called Funnies on Parade, which was a reprint of previously published the Sunday strips. And it was... Uh, kind of offered as a promotional giveaway for Procter & Gamble, you know, eat these cereals or send in these um, proof these of purchases yeah. and you'll get uh, you know, this reprinted uh, comic strip, comic book. This was actually thought up by Maxwell Charles Gaines. Uh, that's M.C. Gaines, father of Bill Gaines, who did the EC comics uh, when he was working for an advertising agency. So he actually was the first person to put the comic strips together in comic book form. He's kind of the father of comic books. Wow, I didn't know Gaines was the uh, the father. I mean, I knew his son took over EC, but that's pretty impressive. Yeah, he essentially created comic books. Um, in 1939, so six years after the first comic book was published, and a good you know 40 years after comic strips were born, the uh, Catholic Church forms the National Organization for Decent Literature, led by John Knoll, the same dude. He's still around, uh, thumping on comics. <laughs> now, now yeah. this. National Organization for Decent Literature, NODL, is a descendant of the the, uh, Vatican's Index Librorum Prohibitorum, which has been around for the last 400 years, and it's a blacklist of books that you shouldn't read as a good Catholic. (laughs) But apparently, over the last 400 years, it's gotten so large and unwieldy, they had to kind of strip it down into this National Organization for Decent Literature. If, if they thought things were bad back in the 1930s, 1940s, I can only imagine how large this volume is now. <laughs> so uh, this organization issued a monthly blacklist, uh, which Noel told people, you know, these parishes, don't post this publicly because it's going to give these young people an idea of what to read. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least they're smart enough to realize that if you tell somebody, especially a young kid, hey, don't read this, it's going to pique their curiosity and they're going to start oh. looking for ways to find it. Right, you know, all these guys have done the hard work. they found all the good reading for you. <laughs> yeah, my mom and dad don't want me to read that? Hmm, wonder what's in there. So he said the purpose of uh, the National Organization for Decent Literature was, quote, not merely to keep Catholics from patronizing evil literature, but to keep it out of the community so that it will not be accessible to any Catholic or non-Catholic. To which I would say, go fuck yourself. (laughs) You can't tell me what I can and cannot read. You can keep your stupid blacklist for dumb shit Catholics who don't want to read stuff that uh, is prohibited by other people, but I'm going to read whatever I want to read. You know, this kind of reminds me of an experience I had with my brother, Sean. Now, all of our listeners are familiar with Sean because he came on screaming that we don't have respect. Well, I went up and I stayed with him and his family over Christmas a little while back, and uh, I decided to sit down with his kids and watch The Incredibles. And as I'm sitting there watching this show, all of a sudden I noticed that the disc kept skipping. It kept jumping over scenes. And so I sat my brother down, and I'm like, hey, I'm like, I think there's something wrong with your DVD. It, uh, 
it keeps missing scenes. And he actually says to me, oh no, I edited those out for content. He basically determined that there was inappropriate content in this Incredibles movie. So I asked him, I'm like, well, what exactly is inappropriate? And he started pointing out that the uh, the mother and father affection was inappropriate, that he didn't like the way the children fought with one another, and so he removed it. And of course, I started getting angrier and angrier at him. And his first inclination was because I have am a writer and I like to write things, that his uh, cutting these out was basically uh, eliminating the writer's ability to get across the point. What he didn't understand is I was getting angry because he was hindering these children because I can only imagine what's going to happen when they get into the kindergarten and a kid starts picking on them. But at any often, rate... Often, uh, I had the same experience when uh, they would come over and play role-playing games, for example. Oh, God, really? Uh, we would um, have movies for the kids to watch. They wouldn't bug us, right? Yeah. So uh, we eventually, you know, and my wife's no, um, she's pretty conservative herself. She doesn't like, right. she never watches R-rated movies. She doesn't like PG-13 movies because they're too explicit or racy. She has a bunch of Disney movies on hand. None of them passed muster. You know, they wouldn't let their kids watch Aladdin. They wouldn't let them watch Lion King, Too Violent, uh, Beauty and the Beast, you know, Too Scary. So she said, well, how about It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown? And they said, no, no, can't do that. She said, why? Well, there's a scene in there where Charlie Brown uh, is given rocks instead of candy, and I don't want my children to see that. <laughs> so apparently they'll just keep them uh, cooped up in their house for the rest of yeah. their lives. Well, I mean, well, the reason why I brought up this story is because as the argument started getting more and more heated, I, uh, I basically said to my brother, you know what, at this point, with what you're trying to protect your children from, you might as well just start burning books out in your front yard along with DVDs that are inappropriate, just like Hitler did. And uh, my brother, with a straight deadpan face, says, you know, Hitler did a lot of things right. Well, then he shouldn't have uh, compared us to Hitler then. Yeah, yeah, I wish I would have thought about that then, but yeah, at at that point I ended the conversation because I was about to punch my brother in the face. So, <laughs> so um MC Gaines actually sold his uh stock in the comic company that, that they were in. He got together and sold it for something like $500,000, which was, you know, um a huge sum. A huge sum. He turned around and started uh, creating comics um that actually weren't that good. <laughs> Not good at all. Um, but one of the comics actually was Wonder Woman. In Sensation Comics, it was Wonder Woman. And he was very disturbed to find Wonder Woman on the blacklist. And so he wrote personally to Bishop Knoll. Uh, and Knoll wrote him back. He said, uh, There's no reason why Wonder Woman should not be better covered. And there's less reason why women who fall under her influence should be running around in bathing suits. <laughs> <laughs> so Wonder Woman was basically tearing down society by her bad example. Yeah, she was um, very scantily clad in, in the 40s. Uh, it, it is very true that Sensation Comics offends less than the average band magazine because the illustrations are not exactly suggestive. That's amazing to me. If you've ever read any early Wonder Woman, she's like uh, tied up or in some sort of bondage in every issue. 
Where a man's tied up. She's got well, bracelets of submission and a lasso of truth. <laughs> well, it, it's great that you bring that up because uh, Wortham, who we'll get into later, that was one of his big arguments uh, against comic books themselves, is that uh, Wonder Woman was, uh, was a thing about bondage. And uh, uh, he claims that the creator actually admitted that Wonder Woman had uh, subtones, undertones of uh, of bondage going he inside, did. and that it was planned. He did. Um, the creator's name was Marston, and, and he wrote um, uh, under a pseudonym in a 1942 Family Circle article, Wonder Woman satisfies the subconscious, elaborately disguised desire of males to be mastered by a woman who loves them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm uh, I'm one of those males who wants a woman to master me. Yeah, William Moulton Marston was was the name. So, uh, yeah, Wortham was right on that one, um, and the bishop totally didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he just banned her because she was scantily clad. Yeah, scantily clad had nothing to do with the bondage undertones, which uh, I am fully applauding. <laughs> 1943. February issue of Catholic World, there was an article, uh, What's Wrong with Comics? Like it or not, there are plenty of American children who know more about the man-wonder Superman than they do about Christ or any of the great characters of the Bible. Oh, how sad. Is your imaginary friend being trumped by other imaginary friends and superheroes? That's like a vampire complaining that more people know about Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Have, have but, you ever uh, watched uh, Robot Chicken? They actually do that with all the early <laughs> monsters, and you know you got the uh, the booberry and things like that, and then you got the swamp, the creature from the swamp, getting all pissed off because they've all got their own uh, commercials and uh, he doesn't have a cereal. Yeah, he doesn't have a cereal. Look, I would I'd like to set the Catholics' mind at ease. If you know the story of Superman, you essentially know the story of Christ. He's sent to Earth by his dad. <laughs> Yeah, raised by an adoptive family. Yep, uh, has superpowers, uh, saves the world, and and in the end he gets crucified by Lex Luthor. So, hmm, let's about, see. Are there any similarities? There? It's all the same. Yeah. Uh, in uh, nineteen forty-four, the Catechetical Guild published. So a lot of this early stuff is Catholic. A lot of this early anti-comic stuff. This is all Catholic. Well. Cat there was also a Jesuit priest uh, by Daniel A. or by the name Daniel A. Lord, who was also against this sort of stuff. You know that Jesuits are Catholics, right? Holy shit! Really? <laughs> you, you thought Jesuits were a separate religion? Yeah, I thought they were separate. <laughs> wow! I learn something every day. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that makes more sense why they were calling him Father Daniel Abel. <laughs> we'll chalk that one up to being the dumb one. Oh my God, you are killing me. Hell, maybe I should have followed the link that had Jesuit underneath it. <laughs> Catechet what that means. <laughs> Catechetical Guild publishes The Case Against Comics as an eight-page diatribe against comics, accusing them of promoting un-American and fascist ideals. In, next in 1944, the St. Anthony Messenger uh, publishes an article called Parents Must Control the Comics. Every month, 25 million comics are, are published in this country. Many portray crime, violence, gunplay, sex, and are largely responsible for, for juvenile delinquency. Now, now, this, now that we've discussed Dick Tracy, what about the other comics? <laughs> 
Uh, you know, no comic that I know of ever portrayed sex, but it's always in there. Sex, sex, well, maybe sex. Maybe they're talking about the Japanese anime comics. They're probably talking about Mickey and Minnie, you know. That was pretty racy. Donald fucking Goofy. Uh, all this stuff. Oh, actually, sorry, that would be Goofy fucking Pluto, wouldn't it? Because they're both dogs. You yeah. don't want to have interracial uh, or interspecies fucking in the comics. Uh, that, and I'd, I'd hate to hear Donald uh, getting a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> now, this was the, the first time the claim was made that comics are responsible for juvenile delinquency, and this was what did them in. This link to juvenile delinquency and comic books. If they did hadn't you just say juvenile delinquency, juvenile delinquency. There you go. And comic books. This was the first time this claim was made, and it stuck. Of course it did. That's because they all wanted it to stick. Now, things are okay for a couple years uh, until in 1947, a 14-year-old Melvin Leland. Well, there you go. <laughs> a kid with that sort of name deserves this sort of attention. You, you name the kid Melvin, and what do you think's going to happen? Well, I mean, with the na last name Leland, and you name him Melvin, I mean, come on. <laughs> That's just... Are, are, do you hate the child? Is that why you did it? <laughs> he uh, plays a game of Russian roulette, losing on the first bullet. <laughs> 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 Listen, kid, there should only be one bullet in that chamber. Yeah, the first bullet. How many bullets was he playing Russian roulette with? Was it a semi-automatic, or did he actually have... <laughs> the hell? Uh, his mother would later say that he got the idea from a comic book. 12-year-old uh, William Becker hanged himself in his basement. Again, mother says he read comic books all the time. No shit! Every kid read comic books all the time in 1947. That's what they did. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're trying to tell me that with the vast majority of children reading comic books, and you have a couple that are out there, one a, a complete dipshit, one that's depressed, and that means comics are bad? Why aren't we seeing a much larger trend of children shooting themselves with several bullets? All the kids should be delinquent, because every one of these kids read comics. Anyway, um, these cases hit the nationwide media... The, the jury ruled the death accidental in that 12-year-old William Becker, but found comics to blame. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. It was a total accident, but you're to blame. Yeah, a complete accident that the kid put the gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Yeah, in that same year, the uh, Fraternal Order of Police passed a resolution condemning comic books. One of them said, We should act for the nation's mothers. They are helpless to protect their children from the lurid booklets through which cavort oh, half-nude women. Half. Apparently they're cavorting uh, half-nude women, which belittle law enforcement and glorify crime. <laughs> so, yes, these poor, helpless mothers. I mean, I don't know about you, Charlie, but if I ever did anything that my mother disapproved of, she would slap me. In fact, she still does. I don't know. Um, the comics, it's not like they're free. They cost 10 cents. Yeah, where are these um, kids getting their money? What, what often happened was the kids would pull their money together and buy a comic and then pass it around to like 8 or 10. You know, you ever see some of those old comics? Almost none of them have covers on them. It's amazing to me that any comics emerged from the 30s and 40s at all. Well, you know, any going of off the, uh, the Catholic's mindset... These comics wouldn't have been able to have been passed around one to another because the pages would be all sticky together. The hell? Hey, 
they're talking about half-nude women running around, and you know, oh, oh, these kids must have been masturbating to it. That's what we're leading to here from the Catholic Church. In 1947, also, <laughs> Bill Gaines was in the midst of a divorce. Now, his mother had set up the marriage, um, so she was she took it pretty hard that they were getting divorced. So, so Bill Gaines's father, M.C. Gaines, the father of comic books, and and uh, he is now um, running a very unsuccessful uh, comic book company called EC Comics. At that time, it was called Enter- Educational Comics. Yeah, it didn't uh, go so well. It was <laughs> mainly. Uh, you know, picture stories from the Bible and a bunch of like Corky Kangaroo, Freddy Firefly, Hector the Inspector. <laughs> I mean, these were terrible. Uh, and once again, here he's trying to pander to the Catholic Church by putting out these Bible story comics and and these moral comics. Yeah. And they do horribly. Hmm. I wonder why. The church and religious institutions are pretty much the only. Uh, people who ever bought the picture stories from the Bible, when the world would kids buy that. Anyway, M.C. Gaines takes his mother to kind of cool her off to the family cabin. It's in the lakeside. And he gets into a boating accident and dies. And now, that's where we get the proper Gaines in charge. The mother blames this on the son. And actually, Bill did feel responsible for it, because they were up there because of his divorce. Um, but uh, the will gives half of his stake in EC Comics. That goes to Bill. Half of it goes to the mother. So now um, she, he has you know, no idea what to do. He says, I don't want to do this. And she said, please, please, keep the family business going. Think of your father. It's what he would have wanted. So he agrees to it. <laughs> and thank God he did because, Bill, you are awesome. He, he puts out some really good comics. Yeah. Um, you know, in the late 40s um, and early 50s, there it's kind of this groundswell of uh, articles against comics. Um, yeah. Frederick yeah. Wortham, Wortham is in there doing symposia against comics. Uh, Collier's Magazine publishes something called Horror in the Nursery, which references Wortham's studies. <laughs> well, I mean, back then you could throw a stone in any direction and you'd hit some sort of critique on comic books and how it's corrupting the youth. Yeah, there was a uh, seizure in Detroit. Police descended on newsstands all over the city and uh, seized a bunch of comic books and uh, uh, banned 36 of them uh, based on four criteria, right? If the characters were depicted planning or perpetrating a crime, well, there goes all the superhero comics. Yep. If it showed youths involved in a crime... Well, there go all the little kids uh, thwarting the adults. If the entire comic dealt with crime, and four, if it portrayed gruesome or brutal conduct on women, children, or race. You you know that the third one was was just thrown in there. Women, (laughs) children, or race. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can't have them engines being taken advantage of. Yeah, women, children, or people of, you know, racial minorities or ethnic minorities, you know, they just throw race in there. Um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 30 comics and one nudie magazine were outlawed by the county prosecutor. Only um, one nudie magazine? <laughs> right, only one. <laughs> but, you know, also in 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a New York law as unconstitutional. Um, that was based on, I think, the, the Comstock law, uh, saying that it was too vague. Interestingly enough, the majority said they found nothing redeeming in uh, the comic magazines. <laughs> But they said that, you know, the article, the statute itself was too vague. 
and they called for action. They said, nothing's to stop you guys from coming up with a more specific statute that's enforceable. So a, a bunch of different uh, states and counties and um, uh, municipalities enacted a bunch of laws against comics during this time. And, you know, during this time, they're taking a cue from the radio and the pulp magazines, again, which are mostly involved in crime. You know, have you ever listened to Suspense uh, or any of these old radio Yeah, I loved them. In fact, I ran across them uh, when I was in high school because I bought this shitty car that could only play AM, and I, I ran across this radio station that would play these old crime stories on the radio, and yeah. I used to, I fell in love with them. I used to go down to the library and search for them, check them out, and I'd listen to them at night. They're fantastic. They're all about murder and, and, and crime and Edward G. Robinson shooting people. It's, <laughs> it's it was fantastic. Great. It was beautiful storylines. In the following year, 1948, a 14-year-old boy was found hanging in a room over a comic, open to a page where someone was hanged. So, that was yeah. yeah. The, the kid, <laughs> before looking at that panel... He had never considered suicide before, but the power of that panel and artwork just made him tie a noose and climb up on a chair. I'm not sure if he actually meant to commit suicide or if he was just acting out what he saw, uh, in which case, he's still stupid enough, and uh, thank you for preserving the gene pool from your genes. Yeah, I can only imagine what offspring that kid would have kicked out. In October 1948, another headline, Boy Shoots Brother to Death in Fight Over Comic Book. <laughs> <laughs> this could actually happen. I had one of my brothers chase me around the house with a knife because uh, he actually did like one of the comics, and I took it from him because I wanted to read, so he chased me with a knife. Absolutely. Um, you know, you're a kid. You take these things seriously. Yeah, it's, it's a comic book. It's, it's serious stuff. It's your possession. So here's the deal. Ten-year-old wanted to trade his comic book to a neighbor kid, but his six-year-old brother hadn't read it yet. So they're fighting, and uh, the father gets angry and sends the ten-year-old to bed. Um, so he's got his comic in there, but the six-year-old still hasn't read the comic. So what does the six-year-old do? He finds a shotgun in his parents' room, loads it, shoots his brother in the head, gets his comic, and reads it. <laughs> That's a victory, I think. I think... I think that that little brother deserves it. At at the age of six, he knew how to load a shotgun, yep. pull the trigger, and the parents were so oblivious to the shotgun blast in their own home that the kid got to read the comic book. I think that sort of ingenuity and resourcefulness ought to be rewarded. I agree. I agree entirely. And... Uh, the fact that the parents uh, left a shotgun with shells right next to it and then just ignored the blast, that deserves reward as well. <laughs> so, uh, to give you an idea of what kind of comics were on the newsstands in this time, um, crime was the huge thing. In 1946 to 1948, percentage of crime comics went up from 3% to 14%. So that's what, one out of six? Yeah. One out of seven on the newsstand are, are, are crime comics. The titles included such um, names as Crime Does Not Pay, Crime Must Pay the Penalty, Lawbreakers Always Lose, Law Against Crime, True Crime Comics, Crimes by Women, Crime Exposed, and Guns Against Gangsters. I I'm seeing a pattern here. I just can't put a <laughs> finger on it. You know, it seems like, with names like 
Crime does not pay. Lawbreakers always lose. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. seems like crime's a bad thing, right? Yeah, you would think that uh, these comics would be applauded because here you have comics that are teaching kids, hey, you do anything against the law, you're going to get caught and punished. <laughs> right. You know, it's not like crime runs rampant. <laughs> yeah. Right? Criminals escape. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> seems Seems good. In some numbers for you, 1948, between 80 to 100 million comics are purchased every month for $72 million in annual revenue. $72 million. That is impressive. That is really impressive for that time frame. It's big business. Um, uh, the writing's on the wall at this time. In July of 1948, 12 of 34 comic publishers, uh, including Bill Gaines of EC, band together to form the Association of Comics Magazine Publishers, sets up its own code. Are you ready for this? Yes, I'm always ready for it. Six-part code. Number one, sexy comics should not be published. God damn, I lose on the first one. I would love to see a sexy comic. Does that rule out Archie, Betty, and Veronica? Well, Betty's the hot one, right? Yeah, yeah. Betty's the one with the, uh, the Nazi nipples, so yeah, she would be banned. Betty and Veronica look exactly the same. They're totally interchangeable. You just change their hair color. Really? I've really got to look up at Archie. Number two, crime should not be presented in a glamorous fashion. I don't think it ever was. Number no. three, no scenes of sadistic torture. Number four, vulgar and obscene language should be avoided, of course. I don't think that was ever in the case. Uh, uh, five, divorce should not be glamorized. <laughs> Does that include uh, uh, having uh, premarital sex or just affairs? I guess just it shouldn't be shown to be a good thing. Yeah, okay. And number six, ridiculing or attacking religious or racial groups is forbidden. That just makes me want to do an irreligiosity comic. <laughs> uh, so even then, it's only about a third of the comic publishers. And actually, between then and about six years later, the time of the Senate hearings against comics... They lost nine of those 12 members. Only three remained. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's because they were soon discovering that these comics, these racy ones, are selling better, and money always trumps morals. Yeah. Um, 1948, Spencer Elementary School teacher Mabel Riddell um, actually brings a kid into her room and convinces him to get the other kids mobilized against comics. They go door-to-door -door collecting comics, and talking to the people who sell them, the newsstand, the retailers. In October, they've collected 2,000 comics. They throw these comics into a, a six-foot pile and burn them. This actually, in the newspapers at the time, this caused nationwide press, recalled the recent 1933 Nazi book burning, uh, where they got 25,000 books that uh, the Nazi fascist government didn't like and, and burned them in the massive bonfire. Well, let's not forget the Jack Chick tracks of recent years where he depicts <laughs> the Christian book burnings. So. Yeah, right. Doesn't end. That's something about Christians and burning books. Um, in 1945, uh, three years earlier, nuns had sponsored a book burning at Saints Peter and Paul Elementary in Wisconsin. Um, they actually named the boy and girl who brought in the most books on a list of objectionable. Obviously, that's the blacklist, right? Knowles blacklist. Yeah. They named them King and Queen of a Bonfire, and they burned 1,500 comics. <laughs> 1947, St. Gall School, again, another Catholic school, in Chicago burned 3,000 comics. So now they're burning comics right and left. That right there is what? 6,500 comics. That's a lot you know of how comics. valuable those comics would be? 
Yeah, they're kicking themselves for this one. They're killing me. In uh, March of 1949, laws regulating comic books were pending in 14 states. In 1950, actually, um, the uh, publishers themselves actually toned down the crime comic scene and uh, a new trend of romance emerged. So that kind of replaced crime and that tempered down criticism of comics for a while. Yeah, because we all know that kids would rather read about romance than guns and violence. Maybe this is where the criticism about sex comes in because these romances were all about the women and, you know, having affairs and having romances and et cetera, et cetera. Well, anyway. that's, that's just allowing women to believe that they can get out of the kitchen every once in a while. January 1950, Newsweek publishes Comfort for Comics. Now, this was a 12-month study of nearly 3,000 children in Massachusetts. Their conclusion? No statistically significant effect of comics upon the personalities of their young devotees. Wow. Really? What a surprise. Unbelievable. In, in May 1950, um, there was an article called Blame Parents on Delinquency, Not Movies or TV. All of the, the healthy, well-adjusted children that they studied read comic books. Every one of them. <laughs> well, uh, it, it's unfortunate that uh, these people who did these statistics just didn't understand the true nature that was underlying it all. So this is this is kind of the the down part of this whole thing. This is the nadir of of the criticism against comics. Nineteen fifty. Um, in June of nineteen fifty, a man named Estes Kefauver led a special committee to investigate crime in interstate commerce. So this is a Senate hearing, um, and they actually investigated the relationship between comics and juvenile delinquency. They spent a couple days on comics. They uh, actually. Wortham or Wordham or whatever his name was um, wasn't invited or he declined to appear so he wasn't there um, too busy writing a book maybe or doing yeah, yeah. anti-comic studies um, the newspaper headlines of the time uh, read many doubt comics spur crime and US survey clears comic books of breeding teenage criminals the outcome of that uh, was that essentially there were many reasons for juvenile delinquency and uh, comics uh, certainly wasn't a major contributor well, of course not, with, with names like Crime Doesn't Pay and uh, Criminals Beware. I mean, come on. The, the, <laughs> the poor kids were probably thinking that if they ever did anything wrong, the, uh, the detectives from these crime stories were going to hunt them down. Yeah, <laughs> so things are, in 1950, looking pretty good. But also this time, you know, EC uh, is, is doing okay. They're kind of imitating all the other trends. They did a bunch of crime comics, um, but they're not really tremendously successful. They decide now they don't want to be following the trends. They want to be making them. So the new trend for EC, they start doing horror comics. Yeah, and actually, January 1950. This is good. One of the um, comics that they kind of floated this in was called, it was first called International Crime Patrol, and then it was just called Crime Patrol. And they had actually the first appearance of the Crypt Keeper and Tales of Horror, Tales from the Crypt, in International Crime Patrol. It took over International Crime Patrol when it became the most popular feature. And there's a reason there's no Tales from the Crypt number one, and that's because it cost money to, to get a postal license in that time. So it just kept the numbering system from International Crime Patrol and replaced it with, uh, I think it was called Crypt of Terror first and then Tales from Actually, the Crypt Actually, Vault of Horror was the first one and then uh, and Crypt of Terror, which then became uh, Tales from the Crypt. Three yeah, Vault, Vault of Horror replaced another one. 
uh, maybe it was like an army book or something like that. And that also had a different numbering system too because it took over from the other one. Man, it, that Gaines guy was cheap. <laughs> well, he, he may be cheap, but he came up with some kick-ass ideas. These comics were incredibly successful. Uh, almost immediately they were imitated um, by other people around uh, the field. And essentially they're anthologies of horror, right? The only yeah. thing that, that made EC stand apart from the rest of them is they got the only recurring characters, basically. They got the Crypt Keeper, they've got the... Uh, the Vault Keeper and the Haunted Witch, I guess. The Old Witch was the yeah. third one. Now, just an idea of how popular they made these horror comics. I mean, they, they put out The Vault of Horror in January 1950. By 1953, uh, these other companies were imitating EC, and horror comics accounted for nearly a quarter of all comics published. So we're talking 25% of all comics published were horror comics. Yeah, they're massively popular, and that's what comics did. They, they saw something was popular, and they immediately imitated it. EC also stood out because of the quality of the writing. Uh, they had twist endings on all these things, so it's kind of like the Alfred Hitchcock or suspense stuff. Of horror. Of horror. And they had this dark, twisted humor that was uh, fantastic. You know, the, the Crypt Keeper was gleeful in this stuff, and he would uh, bask in, in all this stuff and make terrible puns, they would have a, an ongoing um, war between who would tell the best story, the Crypt Keeper or the Vault Keeper. Uh, it was great. They were also the first to do a letters page in comics. That was EC. Uh, yeah. First people to do that. They involved their own audience in there. They were the, also the first to allow their artists to sign their name. And they gave uh, prominence to the artist. They would have like an artist biography page in, in uh, some of the issues. So they'd spotlight yeah. their artist. Artist credit, because, I mean, anybody who reads comic books, I mean, especially you, Charlie, you know all the artists by names, and it kind of cracks me up, because we walk in there, and you're like, well, I like this particular artist, but this one sucks, and I'm sitting there going, I, I, it's pictures to me, I just want to look at the pictures. <laughs> well, you know, you read comics for, for for even a little while, you get your favorite artists, you get your favorite writers, um, and that's, I think, what EC was trying to engender, because they had the best uh, artists in the field, literally some of the best writers in the field. And so they wanted to spotlight them and, and create that following because, again, there weren't any recurring characters. There wasn't a Superman to draw people to their comics. Um, and uh, quite a few times, if you read those comics, they'll say, you know, don't be fooled by imitators. Look for the EC symbol. <laughs> it was a problem. <laughs> well, of course it was a problem. Everybody was trying to jump on the bandwagon because they saw that EC was kick-ass from here on out. Yeah, screw Jesus. Let's, let's see some horror. So, and during this time, the Korean War is starting. It's underway. Juvenile delinquency dips down and then goes back up. But again, most people blame this on the Korean War uh, and not comics, initially anyway. Yeah. Um, what happened, unfortunately, is when people were imitating each other on the stands, these comics, there is no comic code authority. There's no external regulation. And these people, the only thing that would set you apart from your competitors is kind of increased shock and increased gore, and so it kind of set up this downward spiral of <laughs> of more gore, more shock, more horror. Uh, they're in an attempt to outdo the other comics. Well, it, it's the same thing that was going on in movies at the time. Now, this guy Hayes actually developed the Hayes Code, and uh, he he tried to develop this uh, way back, but in the 1920s and 30s with the Great Depression. I mean, people found out that uh, the more racy films 
were the ones that sold the most. Of course, sooner or later, Hayes was able to, to put everything down, but it's the same exact thing. People are seeing the raciness, they're seeing it, and they try to trump one another. They try to come up with the more sadistic twist. So during the time of these hearings, actually, they riveted the nation, um, this, the, these Kefauver hearings uh, in, I think, 1951, 1950-1951, uh, where, do you remember when you were growing up when uh, the Iran-Contra hearings were on and people would stop what they were doing and, and watch Ollie North and there was an Ollie mania going across the country? I didn't have television growing up. <laughs> That's what it was like uh, to our listeners then, if you remember this. That's what it was like in the 1950s. They, they were, it, was, it had everything. It had crime, had these crime bosses who were put on the stand and they're you know kind of wringing their hands they're trying to get out weasel out they're trying to explain how all these people gave them massive donations <laughs> massive gifts uh, of cash um, and uh, this guy Kefauer was going after all these people and, and putting them in jail so um, it kind of riveted the nation um, that set up for the the next two three years later they're having senate hearings that really that specifically address juvenile delinquency Kef Alvers back, and he's got a guy called Hendrickson that's in there as well. Now, in the summer of 53, the Korean War ends, and some of the POWs start returning to the United States. Um, now, keep in mind, these people have been starved. Uh, they've probably been tortured. Yeah, um, beaten. They're not, they're not in the best mindset. A lot of them start acting really strangely, and these rumors start spreading about brainwashing. People are really, really concerned about the communist threat, um, communist spies, right? Well, once again, <laughs> blame all scare. your problems on the commies. Well, you know, um, the Russians, the, the the Reds, got the bomb because of, you know, some spies yep. in our country. So, at least, <laughs> that's that's the story anyway, right? Yeah. So, it, it created this well, massive scare. that's because the, the, the commies aren't smart enough like us over here with democracy they aren't smart enough to develop these technologies themselves. Right. So the people are worried about brainwashing. They're worried about communism and, and what effects these comics can have again. So it's starting to wind up again with these horror comics getting really gruesome. Which, you know, if you read them by today's standard, they're incredibly tame. Incredibly tame comics. I, I think they're really good. They're really well, well written. Yeah. Um, but, you know, by today's standards, they're, they're amazingly tame. Anyway, in the 1950s, early 50s, Harvey Kurtzman's working for EC Comics, and he's slower than Al Feldstein, who's doing the horror comics. Al Feldstein wrote every story <laughs> out of three horror comics, and had some time some, you know, initially to draw them as well, so he was making big bucks. That the EC, I think, was paying somewhere between $25 and $30 a page uh, for the artist. Now think about that, in the, in the 40s and 50s. That's, that's amazing. That's some good money, but EC is smart. They understand that uh, if you pay your artists well, they're going to produce good work and they're going to continue to be loyal. Because you yeah, well, got all these other <laughs> horror comics out there that I'm sure are trying to steal these guys away. Yeah, you'll uh, attract the best artists, basically, by paying the best money. So anyway, uh, Kurtzman asked for a raise. He says, uh, your books aren't selling as well as a horror comics. And so he pitches, Kurtzman pitches a humor comic, which later becomes Mad, right? Yeah. That's also pretty successful. So successful that they release a imitator themselves, EC, called Panic. And th this actually caused some problems. 
<laughs> in December 1953, Panic Number One is released. They satirized the night before Christmas. Um, <laughs> not a good idea. No. On no. December 18th, I think this is like a week after it hit the stands. Uh, the Governor's Council of Massachusetts called for a statewide ban on the magazine, the comic, because it, quote, desecrated Christmas and portrayed the holiday in a pagan light. Oh, my God, the irony. Really? <laughs> oh, the irony. Well, I guess it's a good thing nobody understands the origins of Christmas. So. <laughs> they cited the just-divorced sign on the back of Santa's sleigh <laughs> as problematic. Oh God! You know there there are other things like a bunch of animals that no one's stirring because they're all dead, right? They're all on hooks, and I mean it was it's just you know good clean fun. Anyway, uh, typical uh, <laughs> typical EC style as far as right. I'm concerned. Three days after they issued the statewide ban, it was pulled from the newsstands in Boston. The distributors were warned with threat of prosecution if they sent more. So now you can't even send it. So uh, police actually went into the offices of EC. They asked to purchase a copy of Panic, and uh, the receptionist, Shirley Norris, gave him a copy, and she was arrested for violating the New York state law against the sale of indecent literature, <laughs> carrying up to a year in prison if she was convicted. Oh, fuckers. Uh, the case was brought to trial in January of 1954, and uh, the prosecutor brought a copy of Panic Number 1 to show the judge. He says, look at how indecent this drawing of the woman is, right? Um, she's she, her slip is showing beneath her hem of her skirt. Now, <gasps> later on in the story, this woman is revealed to be a man, but you know who reads the whole thing. Yeah, um, yeah. the well, judge. He was shaving his legs; that would have thrown them all off. So the judge asked the prosecutor if he'd ever seen lingerie ads in the subway and dismissed the case. <laughs> well, at least the judge was smart. So now that that kind of started some badness for comics in February 1954. The Hartford Courant published a story called Depravity for Children, 10 cents a copy. It includes a photo of E.C.'s Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror, as well as Mad and Panic. I'm noticing a trend of uh, pointing fingers at E.C. Yeah, in the spring of 1954, Frederick Wortham um, publishes Seduction of the Innocent. You remember Anthony Comstock at Traps for the Young? So he's kind of following that, Seduction of the Innocent. Now, there's um, actually my favorite quote, and uh, I want to read it. And Charlie, uh, you can you can respond to this. Now, this comes from Seduction, page eighty-nine to ninety, where uh, Wortham states, "I have known many adults who have treasured throughout their lives some of the books they read as children. I have never come across any adult or adolescent who had outgrown comic book reading who would ever dream of keeping any of these books." For any sentimental or other reason. Oh my God. Really? He's never really? met a comic book collector. Never met a comic book collector as an adult or an adolescent who had outgrown it. This is on page 89 to 90. I mean, to be fair, in that time, comics were thought of as disposable. You'd read them, you'd pass them around to your friends, they'd read the crap out of them, and you'd essentially you'd throw them away. If you didn't throw them away, you'd put them in a box, and your mom would throw them away when you left the home. I mean, it's... That happened all the time. It still happens today. It still happens today. <laughs> <clears throat> Unless, of course, you're still living in your mom's basement, and then it's it's still under your bed. So inside, Wordham uh, says, If I find a child with a fever, he's an MD, by the way. If I find a child with a fever, I do not ask him, 
What is the cause of your fever? Do you have measles? I examine him and make my own diagnosis. Oh, bullshit. You're a fucking psychiatrist, dipshit. You wouldn't know measles if it came up and bit you in the ass. <laughs> Jesus fucking... Yeah, he was always confusing anecdote with data. I mean, everything that came out of this guy's mouth was anecdotal. Yeah, he's um, he's a psychiatrist. He opened up a, a clinic. Actually, it was a, it was a clinic for the poor and underserved in Harlem. And, you know, this is at a time where mental illness wasn't really treated uh, seriously at all. So he thinks it's really important, um, and he serves a lot of uh, black children who otherwise would not have been treated whatsoever. I don't know if it's better to be treated by Wertham or not treated at all. But I'm thinking not at all. Let the craziness ensue. In that capacity, he observed a bunch of kids, and in his limited... Again, this is a selection bias, right? Because he's got a small selection that all come in. They're all abnormal because they're presenting themselves to be treated or their yeah. parents are bringing them in to be treated. And he happens to notice, hey, a lot of these kids read comics. Well, no yeah, shit, no shit. Kids. So he says, whenever the question of control of crime comics is raised, the industry starts to fuss about freedom of expression. Uh, yeah, rightfully so, right? It's First Amendment, constitutionally guaranteed. His answer to that is this. The text and drawings of crime comics are concocted, not created. And there is no freedom of concoction. The fuck does that mean? The fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> He's just going to pull anything out of his ass to make it sound plausible. There is no freedom of concoction? Uh, you can't think stuff up? You have no, no freedom to think stuff up, is no. what he's saying. You can speak, freedom of speech, but you can't freedom of think. So again, much like Jesus... Uh, this psychiatrist wants to convict us of thought crimes. You can't. You don't have a freedom to think whatever you want. Well, uh, I think he would probably, in his later years, have been a big fan of Orwell's 1984. God. Uh, never in that book does he think that any older readers could uh, read comic books. He refers to them throughout the book as children. So only children read comic Forget about the fact that uh, Marines uh, read comic books. Uh, very popular in the armed forces. I believe even in the Coast Guard. Yeah, well, we, we wouldn't go that far. The Coast Guard is the bastard child. They don't get much. <laughs> now, I, I love it because he brings up a bunch of horrible images. And he says that if you know where to look, there there are images within images. And he, he has a drawing of a shoulder where you know the little cross hatching, the hatch lines? Yeah. That, that kind of, those crossing hatch lines vaguely resemble a woman's vagina, her pelvic region. Yeah, this guy was a fan of Freud. <laughs> Anything so, longer than it is round is a sex object. <laughs> I would like to point out I am longer than I am round. So now, um, in November of 1953, the uh, Committee on Juvenile Delinquency begins. I love that term, juvenile delinquency, right? Yeah. It's such an ancient term. Did you ever hear that growing up? No. It's pretty much rooted in the 50s, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's just They're very concerned that... about this. <laughs> Uh, so they're going to televise it, just like they did the crime boss hearings uh, three years ago. Um, it wasn't until April of 1954 that they came around to devoting two days of hearings specifically to comic books. Now, they, in they invited a bunch of comic book publishers, a bunch of comic book artists, comic strip artists. Uh, Milton Caniff came in, and he testified. Um, he distanced himself from the comics, though. He's like, if she, I don't do comic books. <laughs> I do comic strips. <laughs> well, see, this don't is where I'm actually with impressed with Gaines, because Gaines was the only representative of the comics industry to step forward. 
That guy's got some balls in my book. Well, other people were invited. Gaines wasn't. Gaines volunteered. Yeah. He volunteered to testify. Um, and <clears throat> at that time, if you see pictures of Gaines, he's really fat. <laughs> so he's <laughs> overweight. He's taken some diet medication, probably got, you know, Sudafed or caffeine in it. He's he's popping no-dose. He's working on a draft of his speech for weeks at a time, right? He stayed up all night before that testimony working on this thing. <clears throat> he thought he was going to testify in the morning. Didn't. He was put off. Uh, the the morning opened and they do little speeches and introductory sessions and have like their first guy and then they break for the afternoon again Gaines is put off to make way for Frederick uh, Wortham so Wortham comes to the stand he arrives in a lab coat the fucker arrives in a white coat <laughs> well that it, it's great to me that uh, at least he's smart enough to realize that if he shows up looking the part that maybe people will think he's more professional than he really is. Right. Because he just came from, like, an autopsy, or he was working yeah. with test tubes and shit in his lab. I'd be surprised Such if he didn't bullshit. have a test tube while he was on the stand and he was comparing it, saying, oh, excuse me, I have a very important study to do. Yeah. Well, he characterized his work. You know, they were very nice to him. They they let him talk for hours, right? They didn't really question him. They didn't grill him. The only questions they asked were to clarify a point. Um, so he, he said that his work in Seduction of the Innocent, he characterized it as a sober, painstaking, laborious clinical trial. Oh, really, Fred? <laughs> Where was the placebo group, dipshit? What were you doing? If anything, it was... Um, Just off the top of his head. This is one of those Right, where you collect a bunch of data and kind of sift through it. Uh, <clears throat> it wasn't where you... you uh, clinical trial where you take uh, you know, a group and you take another group and you separate them and try to randomize them as much as possible. One group gets a placebo, the other group gets... It wasn't anything like that. It was just anecdotes based on his you know, uh, patients that he saw. Bullshit clinical trial. Laborious. Yeah, yeah let, let's see some of that data and a little bit less of the anecdotal evidence you were throwing out, jackass. Yeah, all anecdotes. Um, no, no, he cites no research protocols. Nothing. It's all you know, case studies, basically. And it never occurs to him that to to balance those case studies with healthy individuals, healthy kids. Anyway, um, he he uh, differs with the rest of the expert witnesses that that are called in. Uh, everyone else says that no, it's not a major contributor. Um, you know, if kids are are kind of on that way anyway, if they're already juvenile delinquents, comic books could make them worse by giving them ideas. But it, it doesn't harm normal kids. He says the opposite. He says there arises the question. What kind of child is affected? I say again, and without any reasonable doubt, and based on hundreds and hundreds of cases of all kinds, that is primarily the normal child, right? And yeah. then he goes on to say, I think Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry. So he Godwin's right there in 1954. <laughs> well, see, the, the thing that I just don't understand is why these Senate hearings, why not a single one of them just thought in the back of their head, well, if what he is saying is true then why is it we aren't seeing rampant, rampant crime? Why aren't these kids, these normal kids, going knuck and futs? Well, yeah, I mean, comic strips have been around since the turn of the century. Comic books now for uh, probably, what, 20 years? Two decades. Yeah. That's enough for these kids to grow up. Why, aren't, why isn't every single one of them, if, if it affects normal children, and they all read comics? Yeah. And once again, anyway. it just shows a lack of thought process. Gaines, uh, right, but you're looking for rational thought process in the halls of Congress. That's a good point. 
All I want to know is if they're gay or lesbian. That's the only thing that matters. Yes. That's what's on America's mind. Um, <laughs> Gaines, Gaines is called to the stand, right? And he, he, he gives his short prepared statement, which um, basically uh, in part he says, Our American children are for the most part normal children. They're bright children, but those who want to prohibit comic magazines seem to see dirty, sneaky, perverted monsters who use the comics as a blueprint for action. <laughs> perverted little monsters are few and far between. They don't read comics. The chances are most of them are in schools for retarded children. <laughs> I love Gaines. In fact, uh, I mean, he even—I uh, mean, he was admitting that he was the first horror comics, uh, and he he compares Wortham's understanding of comic books to a frigid old maid's understanding of sex. Gaines is my hero. I love this guy. Yeah, he said something like, um, it would be just as difficult to describe the entertainment in comic books to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to describe the pleasures of love to a frigid old maid. <laughs> wow. Well, he's eloquent in his <clears throat> insults. you got to give him credit. Yeah. So after that, the, now they start hammering him on these questions. And um, Gaines kind of becomes disoriented. His, his uh, diet pills are wearing off. He's been up all night. Um, one of the junior members of the committee asked, is there any limit you can think of that you would not put in a magazine because you thought a child should not see or read about it, right? And now we're, we're, we're coming up upon what probably, the, the exchange that probably destroyed comics. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Gaines says, no, my only limits are bounds of good taste, what I consider good taste. Now, the Kefauer guy, who was um, really good at gr grilling these crime bosses, he holds up uh, crime suspense stories, right? He says, here's your May 22nd issue. This seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which he has severed from her body. Do you think that is in good taste? Gaines says, yes, I do, sir, for the cover of a horror comic. <laughs> yeah, he also points out it it would only be in bad taste if it showed gore dripping down from the head. Yeah, of and course, the, it, what he wasn't telling them is that the rejected version of the cover had gore dripping from the head. <laughs> see? He's censoring it. Yeah, he censored. Well, Kefauer says, um, isn't there a little blood dripping from her mouth? And Kane says, yeah, there's a little there. <laughs> it's like, so what would have been in bad taste? Well, you know, if you lifted the head up and had the gore dripping out of her neck, or you know, you moved the body a little bit back so you could see the the neck dripping out blood onto the floor. He he had nicely positioned it so that you just see like legs and <laughs> and the neck without any gore, you know, dripping She's down. She's just sleeping. Exactly. She's tired. Her eyes are rolled up in her head. <laughs> um, anyway, those were televised, and then uh, newspaper articles around the country picked up that, and uh, that was the exchange. They essentially forgot about Wordham's testimony and focused just on this, that exchange alone. Calls for, for across the nation uh, for horror and crime comics to be banned or, or otherwise regulated. More laws passed, um, banning comics, regulating them. Sales of the comics... Uh, plummeted between 1954 and 1956. Uh, over 50% of the comics go away. Uh, now you got to give a little bit of props to the subcommittee because their final report rejected the idea that comics were solely to blame for juvenile delinquency, but it did recommend that the comics industry police itself 
which happened uh, and they were just facing public or bad publicity and that's why they started adopting the comics code authority the the damage had been done people all around the country said you know we're we're tired of um, being beholden to Bill Gaines' uh, version of taste, right? As if, again, as if adults don't read the comics. But anyway, um, sales are plummeting. Gaines sends out a letter to the other comic publishers to band together and take action before the government censors the hell out of them. And, uh, uh, you know, to his surprise, a bunch of them meet together. That that meeting eventually grew into an organization that called themselves the Comics Magazine Association of America, which established a code of standards. They actually considered offering the position of overseer of the standards to Frederick Wortham. <laughs> oh, dear God. The the first recommendation they came up with is to ban the use of horror and terror in the title of your comic. Bill Gaines says, kiss my ass, I'm out of here. This wasn't what I signed up for. Once again, go Gaines. You are a master. So do you want to hear, there were like 41 aspects of the comics code. Uh, here, here's a, a small segment of it. Uh, you can't show authority figures in a bad light. I've always hated that. It always goes from authority figures to religion. You can't show religion in a bad light. You cannot explicitly present the unique details of a crime. Yeah. You know, heaven forbid. Uh, you give these little kids ideas. Scenes yeah. of horror, uh, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, or masochism shall not be permitted. Well, there goes Wonder Woman. Yep. Zombies, vampires, werewolves, ghouls, and cannibals are prohibited. <laughs> there goes all the fun. No use of profanity, obscenity, smut, or use of words or symbols that have acquired undesirable meanings. That's odd. Yeah. This one's probably my favorite. Females should be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Yeah. That didn't last long. No, no. In fact, uh, would it last one issue? <laughs> well, I'm curious because uh, I know Hayes that uh, the television and the the movie uh, critics they wouldn't allow any portrayals of interracial marriage or procreation. It was all forbidden. I'm I'm wondering, did they do that with the comics as well? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. There's an interesting story about um, Bill Gaines later on, where um, he Gaines walked out of it. You know, um, within a few months. Gaines called a press conference saying that he's discontinuing horror and crime comics and he's going to start a new direction, right? Yeah. Um, so he did, and he tried to do it without joining that organization, but no one bought it. You know, he sold around 15%, so he's losing money hand over fist now. Uh, so he joined the CMAA, and actually every one of his comics had to go personally to the guy who oversaw. <laughs> Instead of, <laughs> I mean, he hired like these four old women to, to do uh, the rest of it, and everyone hated him. But for his comics, they had to go straight up to the, the guy personally. Anyway, there was a comic uh, story called Judgment Day where humans are deciding whether or not to allow a species of robots <laughs> into the Galactic Union for this science fiction uh, comic. And they, they found out that orange robots have actually enslaved the blue robots, who are mechanically identical other than the color. Yeah. And uh, they decided not to let the species in. The last panel is of the astronaut himself, who's black. That's a surprise ending, right? Yeah. So it was rejected by the guy. The guy's last name was Murphy. And he called and told Al Feldstein, who, was, um, who, who authored it, he says, no, you can't have a Negro. He goes, are you kidding? That's the whole point. 
Did you not understand the different color but same robots? So he goes, no. I'm telling you, you cannot have a Negro. So um, Gain, or, uh, Feldstein hung up, and he called Gaines and, and calls, uh, that's ridiculous. He calls the guy back up, says, I'm going to hold a press conference to tell people that the head of the CMAA is a racist bastard <laughs> who says you can't depict you know, unequal depictions of whites and blacks. And so Murphy relented and said, fine, but you have to remove the beads of sweat from the guy's forehead. <laughs> so Kane says, fuck you, and hangs up the phone. <laughs> publishes it as, you know, as he sent it in, publishes it, and quits comics entirely. What he did was got rid of all of his comics, with the exception of Mad. And he took Mad out of the purview of the comics, didn't publish it as a color comic anymore, made it black and white, and uh, published it as a magazine for 25 cents. Yeah, and I, I think it was a, it was a great idea. And uh, I'm glad that Gaines got out because, I mean, yeah, fuck you guys. I mean, seriously, oh, well, he can be black, but take away the beads of sweat. <laughs> guys just being an asshole at that point. They yeah. had crazy shit. Like, uh, they'd have, like, a three-quarter view of a woman, and so you'd have, like, the outline of the breast, and then you'd have a half circle on the other breast, and they'd say, you have to remove the half circle. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> what the hell? I'm uh, sorry. Um well, he says, what are you telling you telling me that we can't draw normal women anymore? Well, you don't have to do it so um, explicitly. He's like, oh, dear Lord. So now we have to draw women with one breast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's that's normal. Well, I'm curious. Did you ever uh, look into what happened to Wortham? Yes. Oh God, that was so Wortham. After uh, he finishes up with Seduction in 1959. He writes a book on the effects of television on children, titled The War on Children, yet uh, no publishers were interested in publishing it. He he kind of faded into obscurity. His last book that was published was actually a book on comic fan clubs. Yeah, The World of Fanzines in 1974, which completely cracks me up if you remember the quote I threw out about him not believing that any adult yeah. or adolescent who has passed would care for these. And it's funny because he has always denied that he favored censor- censorship or had anything against comic books in principle. And in fact, he actually uh, addressed the New York Comic Art Convention. I think at that point he was just crazy. He was either crazy or just had a Alzheimer's. I don't know. Yeah. He was nearly uh, single-handedly responsible for the Comics Code Authority, you know, that little stamp approved by the Comics Code Authority, which made comics completely bland uh, and and very difficult to read and, and um, almost worthless for anyone other than children for probably the next 30 years. Yeah. Three decades of comics. Now, there were some really good comics. Actually, horror comics in the 70s, they kind of made a comeback within the comics code. I don't think they're as good as the 50s EC comics, but there are some pretty good 70s horror comics. Uh, some of the Batman stories in the 70s were really good. They started becoming more realistic. And once the comics got taken out of the newsstands and placed into the direct market, into the comic store, the comics code became superfluous. You, no one, I don't think any, does anyone use the comics code authority anymore? I don't think so. I didn't find any instances of it. Some of I the mean, most brilliant comics ever written. We're talking Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, mid-80s, not approved by the Comics Code Authority, done direct market, straight to the comic shops. And they're beautiful. Uncensored, great storylines. The artists were allowed the leeway. 
And clearly and, now, and probably for the past 20 years, do kids read comics anymore? <laughs> I mean, I tried to get my son to read them. He'll read one every once in a while, but he doesn't really like them. Um, it's video games for kids. Yeah. They've yeah. supplanted comics. The only people who read comics now are fat, 30-year-old geeks uh, like myself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... How I got well, like I said, I was introduced by comics, the uh, the old ones, uh, by my mother. And then when I took a job at uh, at sixteen in a uh, a supermarket, they had a little comic book stand, and that's how I really got involved with them until I quit that job. And then, yeah, I haven't really bought many since. Yeah, um, it's really become a specialized niche market um, for aging nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Way for putting it softly. Well, I mean, it's true. Do you see kids walking around with comics in their stuff in their back pocket anymore? That no. was that site was universal in the fifties. Universal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the co- you part the comics code is partly to blame. I read comics when I was a kid in the seventies uh, through the eighties, obviously, and you know, I, every once in a while, I still do. But you know, there's a, a tremendous difference. Say the Superman stories of the sixties, seventies, and eighties. And the EC comics that I was reading. I mean, those are really, really good adult comics. They're great stuff. They've they've stood the test of time. They're classics. I mean, you, this is we're talking now, sixty years later, nearly. All right. Well, I would like to point out that we have taken an overly long time discussing this because of Charlie's geekdom. And so, please, for the love of God, can we end this? Let's end it. Are we going to do one next week, or are we going to skip next week too? I plan on doing one next week. After all, you were the only one who had a week off because I was doing an interview with Carl. <laughs> so you didn't really have a week off. Huh? I didn't have a week off like you did, Jackass. <laughs> of course, right. I, I will admit that uh, that Chloe brought up a good question. She, uh, Well, in Carl, Carl's little introduction, he uh, was talking about leggy Korean women and uh, kitchen appliances or something like that. And I have no idea what Carl was talking about, but... Uh, uh, Chloe actually asked if I was comparing women to kitchen appliances, and uh, women were my favorite kitchen appliance. And Chloe, I didn't want to say this on the site, but in person I can. Women are not my favorite kitchen appliance. They're my favorite bedroom appliance. There's a difference. Are you even there? I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> It's difficult to tell when I've offended you into silence or when <laughs> Skype is uh, fucking up. Uh, is there such a thing as a bedroom appliance? I guess there is. Yes, there is. Some In of those things age. require batteries. Batteries, my ass. We're talking one four, or 120 volts AC coming into this motor. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> All right. Hopefully we'll see you next week. Take yeah, care. Probably not. Bye. Bye. <laughs>